Hello, and welcome to the Always Already Podcasts. We're your hosts, Rachel. And B And Emily. We are pleased to be back all on a podcast. I feel like it's been yeah, kind it's of been a long a while. time. We've been, been a while. crazy schedules Rest lately. Me, yeah. Um, life, you know. Life, life of the academic. Life. The armchair <laughs> <laughs> academic in our ivory towers. I know. Nothing but leisure and thinking. You know all that contingent labor and sorts. Wine and dialectics. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, God. Kill me. Um, you know, today. Self camembert. Yeah, I know. Interpolation. <laughs> Interrogation. Um, well, today. Oh, we, I hate us so, so much. I mean, yeah, me too. Well, what did we read today? Self loathing and caviar. Ugh. Ew, caviar is gross. Caviar is gross. Self loathing, on the other hand. <laughs> Love it. Perfect. Grisimal. Uh, anywho. <laughs> Thank you for joining us this day, this evening, whatever time of day we release this podcast. Actually, it's as of this recording, it's uh, ten forty-eight p.m. Okay, no so. need to, no need, no need. Just inviting, just inviting them into some real time uh, time, as it were. Yeah, uh, this is a normal. Clearly, it's late. Yeah, it is a normal late. episode of Always Already, but we've sort of got the silliness of the kind of Always Already After Dark scenario. Yeah, but don't. Don't uh, be discouraged. Don't despair. Real, yeah, do not despair. Do not despair. This is a real episode. Today we're going to discuss... Uh, <laughs> this is a real episode. This is totally real. <laughs> what is real? Oh, well, no. especially after reading this book, I'm not sure. I know. Um, and what did we read? We read um, The Eclipse of Reason um, from uh, Max Horkheimer. And what were the two chapters we read? We read a chapter entitled Conflicting Panaceas and a chapter entitled The Revolt of Nature. Um, so we we all thought this was an extraordinarily um, intriguing book. It has a lot of implications socially, scientifically, politically, normatively, ethically. What I mean, other lees that we can sort of like parse out. Yeah, these are lots of adverbs. Um, but you know, we hope that you enjoy um, you know our take on it um, after this uh, brief introduction. Summary, whatever you want to summarize. Wherein we summarize the text and we'll return. The eternal return. The eternal summary. Misha. The Eclipse of Reason, a text written just after World War II by Max Horkheimer, deals with the contested relationships of rationalism, science, and religion in the modern age. Questioning whether science could offer a normative solution to societal ills. Horkheimer delves into the skepticism that marks 20th century thought after the devastation of nuclear power and war and mass genocide committed at the hands of an otherwise popular government in Germany. There is no normative ethic in science or reason. Drawing out the differences of purely objective and subjective or instrumental reason, Horkheimer paints a picture of scientism and dogma that must be confronted in order to be overcome. In Conflicting Panaceas, He offers his analysis of the view that science and religion are two sides of the same epistemological coin, the belief in the transcendent truth that may guide human history. But the socialization of reason into an everyday life of labor has produced mass disenchantment and a society bereft of independent thought. Science can be used to destructive ends, and no less than the dogma of religion, scientism merely rigidifies human sociality. The revolt of nature addresses the internal, almost Freudian repression of individuality in the wake of mass society. The more society builds, expands, and seeks conformism, the more populace falls prey to the ills of discontent and resentment. Man's seeming disposition to control and name, to dominate nature, that is, encroaches on the limits of actual individual thinking. It is through domination of thought and becomes perhaps the unintended consequence of a society guided by scientific conquest, of an ever-evolving need to rationalize the units of everyday life. Ultimately, Horkheimer looks to critical thought as a way out, finding the self uh, in light of the social without losing a sense of the human condition. The Eclipse of Reason is a means of addressing the aftermath of humanitarian devastation in an age where enlightenment reason has left us at an apparent dead end. Uh, <laughs> who wants to start? Or, or, um, um, well, okay, so we, like, we start, B. you okay. wanted to start with uh, the revolt of nature. Oh, okay, we can start with that. Um, 
Which, I know we only had two options. I know. We it's like, like okay, fifty-fifty. So. <laughs> so not on the same page, literally. Um, okay, so all, this is, our books are all up at a different pages. So some of the things that I had, like just in terms of question, um, is that it seemed to me that he was positing a kind of um, what he's saying is nature. Like, what does he mean by nature, as it were? Um, because it seems to me what he's suggesting is that there is an uh, a kind of internalized or individualistic kernel that seems to be pushing against the, you know, what he is sort of naturalizing is civilization's, um, you know, sort of rationalistic turn. Mm -hmm. And he's saying civilization does this to individuals. Um, you know, it turns them into, in a, in a sort of uh, dominating coercive way, um, into kind of a herd. Um, in one sense, yeah. and there's a there's a revulsion on, on in that way against wanting to be dominated. But, um, but is he saying that civilization, as a like natural historical phenomena, does this in real time to people, or that like the concept of civilization and the sort of the formalization of reason that comes along with it as a force, um, sort of privileges one type of humanness or orientation toward the world over another and the one that the one that civilization as a concept privileges is reason and the thing it privileges reason over is nature see i going back to your question of you know what does he mean by nature i mean i thought the obvious one is obviously the the freudian ego but then also kind of nature as a tool of man mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. to that extent connecting to what you were saying emily what does um, does it privilege one kind of humanism over another? Mm -hmm. I mean, I thought that raised interesting questions between how he was using the word rationalizing and reason. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure if he was talking about like to rationalize um, as something good or as like a better or more kind of like um, preferable way of using reason. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm putting that on the table too, if that's something you want to say. I think that on some level, right, he, you know, and I think I, I would, I, look, I'm agreeing with you in the sense that there's a privileging of a certain kind of reason. Because earlier in the book, he talks about objective versus subjective reason and the yeah. use of instrumental reason um, on the part of humankind as a, as a means of sort of conquering nature, as it, mm -hmm. as it were. Um, and so civilization and taking this up, it's kind of a barbarian thing, right? It's like civilization takes up, or at least Western civilization um, in this weird dichotomy that he's drawing, uh, is, you know, takes up rationalization in a certain way. Everyday activities, um, everyday forms of life, um, are no longer magical. They become routinized and habit, <clears throat> and habit mm -hmm. in that sense, or habitus. And so, um, what ends up happening is this kind of, you know, uh, loss of independence or the loss of individuality, um, in one, you know, in a kind of a traditional sense, um, where, you know, you know, civilization creates a kind of pressure mm -hmm. um, to, to live in a certain way and, and to, you know, in an appeal to a certain kind of personality. And so I was thinking, like, well, what is that inner nature that he's talking about in, in the sense that if society is privileging a certain kind of reason, what's, what is the human being's inner nature that seems to be rebelling against um, civilization's you know, push. I mean, I mean it, it sounds like Freud, right? It's it like, seems isn't that like what he that does? is. Yeah. It seems like, and that was what right, was, the appetites and the mm -hmm. desires. Exactly. And I think that's what was so surprising to me is that having only read right before that conflicting panaceas, I would not have guessed that he believed in any form of human nature, yeah. any sort of like naturalized sense of the human, never mm -hmm. mind like a Freudian id that kind of like falls into Freud's repression hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Um, but then he totally goes there in, mm -hmm. in the next chapter, which I found really, really surprising. But I don't know if it's necessarily, I guess, what do you guys mean? Because you've both said that he does naturalizing work. In terms, for me, I meant it in terms of human nature. Mm -hmm. Like he talks about, um, you so know. So he's trying to hone in on something that he takes to constitute human nature, qua, like, universal. Yeah, he seems to be developing mm -hmm. his own humanism, even though he's mm -hmm. attacking other kinds of humanisms. Uh-huh. Um, right. If I'm right, I'd like, I, like, it just seems like he's developing his own. Yeah, I guess I, I wasn't really sure what the, um, I mean, I get the, like, critique of subjective reason and the sort of, like, that civilizing impulse, but I don't know what what the stakes are for him, right? Like, mm -hmm. well, I, I, it, I just realized listening to you both talk about the naturalizing he, do, he does as a thinker 
that like I didn't read that there. Hmm. Mm-hmm. In terms of human nature, you mean? Yeah, I thought he was speculating on like what what understanding of human nature is sort of made possible under um, the sort of like hegemon of formalization of thought or the subjective mm-hmm. reason, right? Because he, he collapses like subjective reason and formalized reason as the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's mm-hmm. in the other chapter. Right, but yeah. he, he uses it throughout the whole book. In the revolt but, of nature. But yeah. I guess what I'm thinking of is in Eclipse of Reason, he talks about repression and how, you know, when you repress the nature within you, and he talks about that. Like on 93, he says, um, in order to do so, man must subjugate nature in himself. Um, and then that leads to repression, and repression can lead to rebellion. Right. And then he, t- he uses words like impulse, repressed mimetic impulse, and he talks about the mimetic impulse as sort of like this natural thing that, you know, um, comes out of you by virtue of being human, and then what's less natural is the way that that's turned into, like, calculated reason. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. well, that's absolutely right, right? It's like, so the mimetic impulse is to, again, is to mimic others and learn behavior, and that's what children do, and it's sort of like this, bio, almost this, like, biological determinism. Um, and then, you know, but that mimetic impulse becomes the rationalized, you know, habit mm-hmm. that, you know, civilization ultimately, you know, uh, requires the human being um, to conform to. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, it's like, so, so that the he, like uh, almost like this epistemic hegemony is you know rationalization of everyday life you know the the rigmarole of everyday life the, the sort of the leisure of everyday of everyday life becomes a kind of a trap, um, and it just seems like you know because like at the very end of all of that in the revolt of nature it just seems like here's the thesis right it's like or on some level the um, in his own way a panacea the sole way of assisting nature. Um, is to unshackle, it's the very last sentence, to unshackle its seeming opposite, independent thought. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, in some way saying mm-hmm. that reason and rationalization, if we're taking it to be, you know, in a certain sense, one as, you know, as a as a way of thinking, the other as a process, mm-hmm. has trapped thought, you know, mm-hmm. has trapped thinking and thought. See, and, I read it as what, what's, pro- what's problematic is that the, like, thesis of rationality or the move toward or the like hegemony of rationality um it's so it on the one hand it traps thought but on the other hand it makes the mimetic or the natural sort of barbaric or whatever however else you want to characterize it these like impulses um like creates that as a something that's necessarily in opposition Mm-hmm. to the ruling order of rationality. So what he's worried about is that when we, when something barbaric happens or when something like that is, that exists in the realm of sort of nature and not of rationality, that like under the current sort of domination of rationality, we don't have any recourse to show how that barbarism and that those things are actually part of or or facilitated by the regime of rationalism, right? Mm-hmm. Or ration, rationality. So, like, I think what he wants to do is sort of unlink nature as the necessary opposite of rationality. But I didn't know mm, that he was necessarily inscribing it with particular characteristics or... But like, even, you even know, in sort of making it... I mean, it's sort of an explanatory, descriptive chapter. Yeah. But, he, but even in that description, there's assumptions. I it's think. like this kind of weird logos thing that's going on. It's Ooh. like... Oh, sorry. No, I just thought that was really interesting. Can you say more what you mean by that? So, I mean, I guess it goes back to tone, right? Or, like, what's his project in it, in this mm-hmm. chapter? And I thought less that... I mean, I guess there's, there's two... There's many possibilities, but two possibilities are, one, that he's kind of, like one-to-one describing what he sees as this move from, um, you know, mimetic impulse to the um, kind of obsession with self-preservation under the philosophical technocracy of of reason, Mm -hmm. as he calls it in the other chapter. On the other hand, he could be talking about the way the technocrats themselves, so to speak, Mm -hmm. the people who kind of promulgate this, this notion of reason, view view nature um with antipathy right makes sense yeah and, and i kind of thought it was the first one well and the, the, maybe I'm wrong. oh but not the second one not the second one 
Well, right. Well, the reason why I would say, like, even going to that, you know, to the point of suggesting, like, nature seems to be taking on a, a distinctly trans, like, a transcendental quality. It's like there's a there's a sort of forgetfulness in the rationalization process of the mystic, like, you know, Weber's sort of disenchantment with the world. So it's like, you know, what what is free or independent thought other than sort of a break from this process that says here are the ways by which we can verify truth and, you know, objectivity. Here are the ways that we can, you know, verify everyday activity as being like, not only just self-preserving, but, you know, something that you become accustomed to, um, that nature then, if it's its opposite, you know, suggests a kind of transcendental quality to it. When you engage in that, you know, and there's one part, I can't remember if it's in um, Conflicting Panaceas or in, you know, Means and Ends, but he talks about, um, this um, no- we didn't read that chapter. Well, well, like I might be conflating <laughs> it. Like it's probably because totally you read too much. Um, yeah. I could be but I also it. don't know that this book, like the chapters, really lift out as separate theses. I mean, he's mm-hmm. like yeah, he's, slightly he's, takes up yeah. different aspects of the same. He's running a he's running a similar that. similar theme yeah. throughout. Yeah. But it's like, so what is thinking then? It's like thinking seems to for him to be a kind of, to have a kind of almost like transcendent quality to it. It's taking a step outside, and you know, it's like mm-hmm, relinquishing the confines of one's mind. Because it seems like for him, it's like the horizons of thought are being confined by reason in this way, mm-hmm. you know, as an historical unfold, like as an historical process. Certainly, in conflicting panaceas, it's like science itself has taken on the reins that religion had once had mm-hmm. um, on thought, and then all of a sudden, like then religion is coming back. Is that how? Is that sort of the things? Like I was wondering, it's like. Is that what he means by Neo Thomas perspectives on, on you know, on religion and science versus mm-hmm. Thomas perception, perceptions on science and religion, in confronting the positivist school, mm-hmm. and then like and then in um, you know the revolt of nature, kind of saying that in the winning out of this sort of positivism, that seems to be happening, you know, people are are pushing against this notion that we're only confined to the, you know, this this rationalistic conceptual field mm-hmm. or apparatus mm-hmm. you know and it's like it's so constricting mm-hmm. and there's nothing enchanting in the world there's nothing mystical um and there's no more room for like independent thought in that way mm-hmm. right yeah um because then it all gets wrapped up in like consumerism and you know was that weird thing here where he's talking about like a child looking up at the moon and saying what daddy was oh, that yeah. advertising. Yeah, that was amazing. I mean, I think what was so eerie to me is how com- this was written in what, 1947? Yeah, yeah. And it's so completely relevant. Like, he even predicts the total appropriation of like one particular element of like yoga by mm-hmm. Western culture. Okay. I mean, it's like, you know, there, it's so predictive of kind of like the neoliberal appropriation of particular you know like Mm -hmm. let's be spiritual so we can work at goldman sachs more efficiently yeah that kind of thing that's sort of a common neoliberal critique right but he locates it under the doctrine of rationalism Mm -hmm. rather than of capitalism purely political economy right in some ways it's like the epistemology of neoliberalism yeah yeah and i think the thing that i thought was so fascinating about it too is that he like collects those things and in the concept of competition Mm -hmm. right that Mm -hmm. like in, in under the positivist sort of preference for rational thought or scientific deliberation, competition is the thing that is valuable because the com- best, you know, the best competing hypothesis will, or the like, uh, multiple presence of multiple hypotheses is like intrinsically valuable for its contribution to something that's like more to mm-hmm. finding something more rational at the end, right? There's like almost, um, there's more of a focus on the procedure, like almost like the procedural apparatus than what's going into it in a way. You mean that's what he, what he's doing is focusing on the procedure? Or rather critiquing the fact that what we're doing in sort of like, you know, in in like this positivist school, right? It's like, we have to set up these procedures that create the, 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 create the conditions that when new ideas enter into those procedures, you know, the truth will, will out as mm-hmm. it were. Right. And so, but, but it has, but the, you know, the things that are going into the, these pipelines, as it will, if you will, um, those pipelines are the things that ultimately verify and give validity to the outcome. Right. But it's like, we're forgetting what the content is. It's like, we've forgotten the things that are going into it. Um, and, well, it's like, I mean, it reminded me a lot of Spivak in that it's, mm-hmm. it ultimately comes down to like, you're not locating <clears throat> your own thinking within 
social processes. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if you did, then you would see that, you know, by this kind of tautological way of verifying, um, quote unquote, truth through your, you know, verified method, so mm -hmm. to speak, um, you know, you're coming up with something that's justifiable, rather than realizing that if you took this method to its logical extension, it would undo your own theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he says, like, on page 65 of Conflicting Panaceas, like, the following here, um, I, I think this might follow what you were saying about Spivak, is, is the social function of these revivals of systems of objectivist philosophy, religion, or superstitions is to reconcile individual thinking to modern forms of mass manipulation, right? And so it's, so in this respect, the effects of the philosophical revival of Christianity are not so different from those of the revival um, of heathen mythology in Germany, et cetera, et cetera. And on some level, I think like, you know, it's, it's this way in which, um, you know, there's a certain degree of reaction and maybe, and maybe in some way, like new ways of thinking is a reactionary, uh, you know, is a reaction to the positivist control over social location. Mm -hmm. It's like you, you can't think about, it's no longer, and this is like, we're jumping ahead into like, you know, in our own like feminist epistemologies, right? But it's like the kind of reason that he's talking about prevents us from being, from accessing Listen. localized reason or localized um, knowledges. Right. Um, the only knowledges that matter for this kind of reason are the things that exist in in the purely objective world. That's right? a good. So that's an interesting point, though, because do you think that he's anticipating that move? Because I'm I'm not actually sure, right? I mean, he's like wants to sort of take science off of its pedestal, as it were, right? To say that like the dogmatism of positivism is no different than the dogmatism of religion. So he clearly doesn't want to say that we ought to derive truth from some reference to a divine mm -hmm. um, providence. But he kind of seems to, like, I don't know, be nostalgic for the, like, objective reason of Greek antiquity, Absolutely. right? And, like, sure. I don't know that where he wants to go is to say that, like, we can find lowercase t truth everywhere we look from our own standpoint. Well, he, you know, know, he's, he's not always like, criticizing like, that. Yeah. You know, he is definitely criticizing that, right? Like he's saying, like everyday yeah. truth. If we put the if we put truth into the hands of the everyday, or the every person is a creator of, of capital T truth, mm -hmm. um, then you know we're losing sight of like you know the ultimate you know some like I guess like reason for yeah, a reason. I almost but, think he would prefer that though, because then it's we're not justifying truth by reference to an empty formula. But I think he's mm -hmm. a, again. I mean, he. I think also it's the ethical dimension comes in. Like he mm -hmm. he attaches a certain ethical commitment and it admires a certain maybe admires is the wrong word but like um describes a certain ethical quality is coming along with um objectivism mm -hmm. and, and an objective way of knowing truth or a transcend transcendental way of knowing truth well even if we go so but god i don't know enough about ancient you know political theory to even like carry the conversation but like you know even going back to you know greek ways of thinking um, isn't logos some kind of transcendental quality that thus is invoked to make claims valid? So like, isn't sort of like in Plato, you know, isn't the way in which a truth claim is made valid through a kind of discursive process between, you know, teacher and student or, you know, in a, in a dialogic exchange. And in that way, it's like, you know, the capital T truth in some way does, even in ancient yes. Greek yeah. notions, come from situated, um, you know, situated accounts of, like, of discussion. I mean, and, but, but Horgemar argues that that's an objective rationalism that is not about that the idea of that process of rationalization isn't that, like, anyone can access this truth if they look at all of the evidence. It's a particular preferred... Um, exchange. It's about. It's about deliberate, like not deliberation. Self-critical. Like, like um, what do you mean, self-critical? So finish your thought and then I'll. Um. That what's the word I'm thinking of? It starts with a D. That means you. Um, or oh, like a deduction, mm. right? That there's like something valuable about deducing something based on like giving arguments and then disproving or, or, or like art finding, um, inconsistencies. Yeah. Inconsistencies yeah. or ways to argue against them. Yeah. Right. Or like holes in the argument. Right. Which I think 
Horkheimer takes to be as something different than like the the self-evident nature that empiricism is the best mode of right. ascertaining some kind of truth, right? That looking at evidence and evaluating the evidence uh, or experimenting to come to the evidence, right? is so like think, the yeah. best, the self, self-explanatory, self-evident best way to... Right. I mean, one question I kept having while I was reading this is like, what would he think about feminist standpoint theory? Right. You know, like something yeah. that's like totally... In, I mean, on the one hand, he would like... He, he's arguing, arguing, he's advocating for... Um, locating the way we know within social processes mm-hmm. right like that's kind of what i meant by the self-critical yeah yeah and then at the same time when that becomes so subjective that you're the way you know and the way you talk about truth is totally dictated by preferences and interests it becomes like nefarious and dogmatic mm-hmm. so i wondered what would he think about something like that which is an example of both like subjective ways of knowing and acknowledging that which isn't to say that standpoint theory is saying there's no objective truth, but like sub- more subjective or qualified objective ways of knowing. But also that is simultaneously not only um, creating knowledge based upon interests, mm-hmm. but is kind of like self-aware of social abuse. Yeah, it's interesting too, because if you think about, if you, if you construe feminist standpoint in a different way mm-hmm. and say that, it is about privileging a subjective reason, but a subjective reason that isn't beholden to the idea that, a, you know, like detached observation is the only way to come at a mm-hmm. truth. And that it actually like believes in the self-evident nature of, of a value, like mm-hmm. social justice or something mm-hmm. that it actually like, I, I don't know. I think there's a way you could make a kind of argument that he would be satisfied I with. I think so, yeah. yeah. It's yeah, about, like, so. giving content to something that it's not just, yeah. like, the emptiness of the, the process itself or the formal process that has value, but, like, actually giving a specific value to the thing or imbuing it with value based on some other criteria of deduction of why that's a valuable Good. thing that's not empiricist and not that... And ultimately, I'm, he's concerned I'm, with the ethical. So yeah. I think you're right. Well, look, I mean, like, doesn't he seems to be like concerned with the two, like both, like these. I don't know if it's a weird dichotomy, the the objective form and the subjective form of reason. Um, he's saying like there's a problem when we formalize reason in such a way as to make it purely instrumental. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like maybe you know he would be, um, you know, if the word is sympathetic, I think he would like totally dig feminist standpoint theory um, and epistemologies in such a way as to say you know, so long as, you know, we're rigorously not formalizing certain ways to justify the knowledge claims that, that people are making mm-hmm. um, from their own localized or situated contexts. Um, and that, you know, because of the fact that we, and when I say we, like, we in like these, um, you know, in, what's the word that he would be using, kind of consumerist or, you know, capitalist societies, that are, you know, so overwhelmingly rationalized, put a particular, like, take a pedestal of a certain kind of knowledge claim, Mm -hmm. you know, feminist epistemologies are saying, no, like, this this kind of justificatory norm to knowledge is problematic. Mm -hmm. And I think Horkheimer would be, like, would totally down with that, Mm because it seems like he's saying objective knowledge is, or objectivist rationality, correct me if I'm wrong, because it's like, objectivist reasoning or reason is problematic because it postulates a kind of transcendental truth that nobody can really get at because at one at one point religion claimed the same thing mm-hmm. and now science does on the I other hand he right thinks it's that problematic though i Is think that, that what's that problem? that objective reason right because yeah. he seems to keep like the way he can denigrate subjective reason is in contrast to objective reason right which is the thing that right. doesn't it, because it, I mean, if we're t- thinking about it in, lo- in the language of like justificatory systems, right? Mm-hmm. That like the problem with subjective reason is that it justifies itself with reference to itself, right? It justifies the process with reference to the process. So yeah. it's a, like an empty justification, right? Whereas he says objective reason at least had a justificatory schema that was with reference out to out- something outside of itself or mm-hmm. an, a- another value or an articulated value. But that's actually, so mm-hmm. that's a good point. Is it? subjective reason writ large that he's against or the way it's implemented in the way that lends itself to ultimately instrumental reason and the way subjective reason operates as a gateway drug to instrumental reason within mm-hmm. quote-unquote western civilization that he's 
attempting to address. Mm -hmm. So I could, you know, I mean, I can't, I can't understand because if he's against dogma and has this ethical view, he obviously wouldn't just be for like an absolute truth, capital T. Which would then be against objective reasoning because that would be dogmatic. Right. So clearly he has like a sort of like qualified or critical Mm-hmm. way that he takes up objective reason because on some level right at the end if that's if this is the unequivocal you know point he's making is that there's got to be independent thought mm-hmm. independent thought in itself then sort of presupposes uh, a concept of thinking you know what is thinking then um and then what is thought what for, is and then ultimately thinking. yeah what is called thinking um, and then, like, what is ultimately, like, independent? Independent from what? You Hella know? irreverent, guys. I know. <laughs> sorry, Heidi. But, like, like these are things... <laughs> sorry, not sorry. But, like, Malty. these are... You know, the, the, the question is, like, okay, so when we're thinking, what are we thinking about? And, you know, if we're not thinking in the sense of, you know, if we're always thinking in the horizon of what oh, makes see, I think rationalized sense... I not worried sense, about what are we thinking about, but yeah. what, how do we value thinking itself? Well, I mean, yeah, okay, yeah, no, absolutely. I I don't think that his, pro- his project is totally not, what mm-hmm. are we thinking about? That's, like, me just sort of interpolating that on him. Mm-hmm. But, like, um, you know, when we're thinking, what are we doing? Maybe that's the other, mm-hmm. maybe that's the thing, right? It's, like, when we're thinking, what are we actually doing? Mm-hmm. Um, are we just recapitulating the justificatory norms of an objective, objectivist perspective of truth or, or um, of reason? Are we buying into the instrumentalized reason of society? It says only these certain ways of being, only these ways of acting um, matter. Mm-hmm. Um, or are we truly being independent in our thought? And I'm like, that's a hell of a, you know, you know, thing to try and work around. Because it's like, when are you truly engaged right. in an what's independent, truly independent, what's truly independent? You know, how does one engage in a thought and, and in thinking that is disengaged from a cultural apparatus that has been instructing you to think since day one? So do you think he's kind of like an, an in, a theorist of the individual? Um, you know, I don't know. It's like, I don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he's a theorist of understanding the individual, like not reifying thinking or truth and not reifying the individual's thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I think he's a, theor- he's a theorist of the individual. Yeah, he's like, but I've only read these two chapters. Well, he does trace yeah. at one point, he traces the kind of like the demise of individuality, but he doesn't hold it in particularly high esteem. Right. You know, yeah, I guess I just had a really hard time. I thought there's so much that's thought-provoking here, but I have a yeah. hard time figuring out like what his politics are. Like he's clearly like wants to figure out a way to say that we can't explain away Nazism by saying that it was science gone wrong. Right. He wants to say that it's, that the, the logic that preferences scientific knowledge, which is the formalization of thought, also made possible Nazism, right? Mm-hmm. And that the system that, like, rationalized Nazism as a system of thought, right? I think, yeah, I mean, I think part of his project is that, like, the way in which we think and create knowledge and understand truth, whether it's capital or lowercase, I'm not sure in this case, ha- should be subject to particular modes of behaving, particular Mm -hmm. behaviors, particular ethical commitments, Mm -hmm. first and foremost. And that's more important than justifying the knowledge for its own sake. Like, Mm -hmm. more important than truth is ethics, Mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah, because, I mean, in one sense, you know, an ethos, a way of being, thus produces a sense of, like, what the true would be or what truth, even lowercase or capital, you know, capital T truth would be. Um, and then it would be a shared community of, you know, you know, this expression of truth. I'm, I'm just like, did I get us on this like lowercase, uppercase thing? No, I yeah. think that's. A, I think it's, it's, it's like a, good a one. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, I think it's a good way of thinking about it because so ultimately, like, how do we distinguish between the true of what we're talking about right now versus some transcendental thing out there that right. everyone yeah. sort of accepts? I mean, you could say granted. truth in quotes or truth as in quote unquote God. Like, oh, right. You know, but I mean, right. But, like, so look at the politics. Another kind of politics would be, you know, to what extent do we accept scientific outcomes as the true and thus use that to political ends? You know, it's like scientific outcomes for whatever climate reason. Change. Climate change, for example. Um, scientific truths related to um, vaccines. Scientific truths related to certain kinds of, um, ev- that affect everyday um, life and an ethos within democratic societies. 
um, and non-democratic societies because it necessarily extends through you know globalization and, and imperialism mm-hmm. um, that if science has no kind of because he's kind of right sorry for talking so long but it's yeah. like if he's it, it seems like he I'm just excited for some reason it's like it seems like he is accusing um, this dogmatic attachment to science of lacking any kind of ethical direction and as a result we are willy-nilly you know hurrying towards the use of science as a means of understanding truth to the extent that you know it can be used for all kinds of purposes with no ethical direction no normative you know qualification whatsoever um, because it just simply is and it's like but then simultaneously with in 2016 if we think that science is you know is problematic that the outcomes of science are problematic because they're still they don't have normative direction or you know they're not social enough or they're not speaking to like the you know the quote problems of society then you know there's something also there's something really wrong with that too because it's like you can't just dispel the idea that somehow an outcome of a scientific procedure is wrong because you just say it's wrong right because it's like He's saying, like, on the one hand, we can't just accept science writ large just because it has an objective set of procedures that produce something. And then simultaneously, we can't just simply reject it because it is doing something. But I think for him it's even stronger than, like, it has no direction or it has no, let's say, or normative force, right? It has no normative force. I think it's it's not just that it has, it's zero, it lacks a normative force. It's not neutral on ethics. It's actively using it as a tool and i yeah. think that that's kind of the difference it's it's more um it's more nefarious in a certain way yeah but then it sort of comes to the question of who who's the subject of this you know the foucault yeah. it's, which it's also like a the question of foucault it's like you know obviously there's not just one king sitting there like twiddling his <laughs> oh hand. right right yeah it's like oh i'm you know instrumentalizing all of these scientific endeavors to 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 strat you know for my own strategy and gain right so so i guess a question that arose for me is like what is the culture that enables this mm-hmm. how does he explain that and it's like i don't know it's so it's kind of disheartening because on the one hand is someone who absolutely loves even the processes of science right total dork here like star trek <laughs> nerd like loving to read about like the Beyond philosophies men, total, of, dork here. No, total dork like in my classes love to make pop culture <clears throat> references to star trek and any kind of science fiction and like and even star like trek. read about like students even know what that is no sometimes like they look at me completely you know like like doe and ed like um <laughs> but, so oh my god 33 <laughs> um but like there's this like I did. I'm 33, <laughs> folks. Um, but there's this like quality that's like that's really <laughs> that's strange. Um, it's like disheartening because on the one hand, science does produce tangible outcomes that like have really sustainable um, and and wonderful consequences for uh, for you know the human condition for human beings. But simultaneously, you know, as we know, they're beholden to social institutions. They're funded by government programs. They're, you know, they're they interconnected, the right? They set agendas. They're interconnected and woven within, you know, relations of power um, that subject them to the kinds of interrogations that Horkheimer is setting up. So it's like, you know, on the one hand, it's like the denier of science. To what extent is this denier of science I don't think provided? He's denying at all. No, 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 no. Like oh, I'm saying, sorry. like even like coming out of this, it's like. To what extent is the denier of science offered a kind of leeway in the way in which one can trace the history of science and then say, ah, 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 it's not some kind of objective universality. Rather, it's an historical process that has sort of slowly overtaken the role of logos and God. And then, you know, to come back and say, but, you know, dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. And it was like for the science advocate, you know, to come back and say, but, dot, dot, dot. I'm advocating something that is, you know, at least on some level grounded in, you know, this kind of reasonable process that's produced something for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like really troubling. I'm, I, I'm troubled because as I read it, I was like, holy shit, you know, it's like, how does one come to terms with this conflict in mm-hmm. which our society does behold itself to a certain degree of scientific validation, but then you have anti-vaxxers, right? You have climate change deniers. You have a variety of others that sort of 
you know, and, you know, not to put, you know, not to dispel and put a, you know, to impugn um, folks, but like creationists that say the earth is 5,000 years old, that humankind walked with dinosaurs, you know, all of these things in which it's sort of <clears throat> what's the justificatory norms of these knowledge claims. And it's like, you know, these kinds of interrogations open up that terrain in mm-hmm. a way, you know, and I don't know, it's just, it's a frightening thought because on the one hand, I want to open up the mysticism of the world, but at the, you know, simultaneously, I'm like, I kind of want to stick with, you know, what's verifiable, you know, empiricism, what's, what's verifiable, so what do I right, do, I mean, like, where do I turn? Because otherwise you go to like, you know, we're here on this stage, Republican debate, 2016, <sighs> it's Super Tuesday, by the way. Yeah, recording. happy Super Tuesday, And people everyone. can invoke God, but I think that's his point, is he's not inherently against science or religion, it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like a particular reification of either that claims to have an absolute um, authority over truth or that claims in the case of science to lead inherently to progress. I think his discussion of progress Mm -hmm. is really important or that's not dialectic in and of itself. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that there's a kind of like, Okay, I'm talking way too much, so I'm gonna stop because Emily haven't heard. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm just like I'm because like you're the 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 epistemologist of like of science. I like this is like I've been okay. craving. No, I've been craving <laughs> it. Like I'm actually like scuffling my feet. Um, scuffle away, my. I'm friend. scuffling, but um, I don't know. It just seems to me like there. I I think that the stakes of each element of this intervention are not so clear and I I think I'm missing some of them. Like I yeah. get I think one one sort of aim is clearly to me to me stands out to be that like there's just this sort of, you know, like rational, logical kind of problem that like positivism which pre- uh, uh, gives preference to the principle of observation is like unjustifiable based on its own principle, right? That you can't justify the principles of observation based on observation. Right. Right, right. Right? It's it's tautological. Right. So on the one hand, there's just this, like, that, this sort of problem with positivism or with the authority of science or with the sort of pedestooling of science, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's this, like, secondary aspect of it, which is, like, how does that interact with this the cultural crisis of the moment right which is like world war ii Mm -hmm. and then i think i think something that what i'm hearing in our conversation is like maybe are we in another you know moment of cultural crisis has the moment of cultural crisis as he's you know construed it like changed is it different did it end did rationalism you know rule out did Right, that there's all these like, it's hard to read it now, Mm -hmm. looking back, I think, and try to think about like, what does it mean to reconcile the sort of tyranny or the authority of positivist science and rationalism with like our cultural conflicts and crises when we're trying to figure out like what's really going on and how to observe stuff, you know? It's like, we, we still haven't figured out how to justify why observation is preferable to any other kind of right. thing. And then if it turns out that it's not, then I think what Horkheimer is doing is something that I think there's other stakes too that I'm not quite grasping, which are like, what else should we do? And he clearly wants like philosophical thought to be a core aspect of what is called thinking, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, what does that, like, what, I'm not quite clear on what he takes philosophical thought to be that's, that is, like, has the potential to undo or overturn some of the, um, sort of effacing that positivism or science does to other forms of thought that he thinks are necessary um, to sort of free, you know, or... We don't have an, I think that one of the stakes too is that we don't have enough, positivism doesn't give us enough with which to combat human domination because you can always justify it based on a set of rational principles. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's, um, I lost my train of thought. Well, so 
is it a, can I jump in yeah, for a yeah, second? Yeah, well, please. so to, to like to come to this question of like how, like how does philosophy fit in? Yeah. You know, at one point he says like in the concept of philosophy towards the end, he's like, there's no pinning it down. Like there's no pinning down of concepts. There's no way to to come to grips with like what's full, like what philosophy has to offer. But we do know that every philosophy that tries to unify in a kind of a monism um, that attempts to unify man and nature on some level ends up creating a condition in which man dominates nature. That's what I, that actually reminded me again, what I was going to say. I mean, I think it really also changes a huge element of this, that philosophy needs to be able to explain the present situation. Like one of the problems it seems he has with the neo, uh, with neo Thomism mm -hmm. is that it uses these kind of this like antiquated metaphysics to try to explain the current situation rather than having it be, um, you know, susceptible to change mm -hmm. and able to be or somewhat like flexible, responsive, right, responsive. Yeah. Yeah. And so our, our ways of knowing should never be, or philosophy itself. I mean, philosophy I'm using as a stand-in, like religion, mythology, mysticism, philosophy, science, lowercase, mm -hmm. should never be so important or become sort of these like political elements in and of themselves such that they cease to change and dialectically describe the world mm -hmm. and acknowledge their own contradictions. You think he does not think philosophy ought to do that? I think he, he's, I think he wants philosophy, but a qualified philosophy, a mm -hmm. philosophy that's not like Neo-Thomism, like mm -hmm. a philosophy that can change uh, with the times. Mm -hmm. So is he a, di I mean, in this sense, like, is he a dialectician? He wants the, you know, because it seems like on some level science is not dialectic. It, it accuses, positivism accuses the dialectic logic of being obscurantist. And then the dialectic logic accuses positivism of, you know, taking, you know, truth to be something absolute and non, and sort of intangible. Like you can't, like, there's no synthesis. There's no, an, you know, thesis and antithesis and, and synthesis. There is only you know, thesis and then, you know, testing evidence. and, for, you know, evidence, etc. And it seems to me, like, maybe I'm answering my own question, but it's like, is there some level of, like, him going, we need to reintroduce the concept of the dialectic? I think he is, right? because he Negation. says on page 79 at the bottom, he says, whether the positivists like it or not, the philosophy they teach consists of ideas and is more than oh, a tool. Yeah. According to their philosophy, words, instead of having meaning, have only function. The paradox that their philosophy has meaninglessness as its meaning could indeed serve as an excellent beginning for dialectical thought. Yeah. But at this very point, their philosophy ends. I think that's like, that's... So he hints yeah, at it there. That's absolutely fantastic. You know, because I mean, on some level then it's like, so words are no longer just meaningless. Words don't serve just a function. Um, you know, words have to serve, you know, they, they're serve, they still serve symbolically. Mm -hmm. This invites like a, I mean, I feel like this is a foundational text in science studies, although I never like came across it like before, um, other than like just in, you know, critical theory, mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah. you know, Linda cites him a lot. you know, yeah. this is definitely, oh, okay. Well, then it's like Linda, love you, Linda. Um, love you, Linda. um, this is definitely one of those. Well, moments. especially when she writes on epistemology of ignorance. Oh, right. okay. Yeah. I mean, this is like, it's such a beautiful text. It's like. I, I don't know, I just, as I was reading through it, it, it caused a kind of this moment of, um, I don't, I don't want to call like, it wasn't an existential dread, it was, all, <laughs> but it was also like simultaneously like the fear of night of nihilism, yeah. you know, where like there's this total loss <laughs> of meaning, right? It's like, yeah. we're headed down this like, you know, this primrose path almost to, of scientism that just has absolutely no meaning whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But then there's this other path that suggests a kind of mysticism that leads to, you know, superstitious outcomes that might be harmful to right. to individuals. How does one die? How does one create a dialectical exchange between these two? You know, sometimes well, I think that's how he. Roads, I mean, right? that's the thing he sets up to explain yeah. Nazis, right? Is it like yeah. the Nazis are not dialectical guys? No. Guess what? No, yeah. Hey. Yeah. But, Spoiler. But like, <laughs> But that, like, the way that, the way that rationalism tries to, like, tame and repress the other elements of the human that don't conform to its internal logics, like, makes those repressed, like, 
you know, anxieties and desires and whatever, like, available for capture by something that doesn't adhere to rational, rationalist logic. Right. And for all those listeners out there, it seems, um, you know, it seems that there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of Nietzsche happening in here. You know, there's a lot Mm -hmm. of, like... I hate saying this out loud about resentment. Like, there's this like internal like because he even says bad conscience amongst like you know, and he says resentment when he's talking about internalized like this internalized form um, of of a certain kind of way of being that you know ultimately gets like of an alienated being in a way Mm -hmm. that gets internalized and wants to you know wants to rip out and be and, and force itself outward but is at all times repressed consistently. And it's like the psychoanalytic view, like the Freudian view, that there's repression. But there's also the repression from Nietzsche, yeah. which isn't really psychoanalytic. It's like proto-psychoanalytic, which, you know, is in itself like social criticism. And it's like, and maybe that the only reason I'm bringing this up is because I was just rereading Genealogy of Morals. And I was like, holy <laughs> shit. Um, you know, I was shocking. wondering where this is going. Um, but like, as I'm going through it, I'm like, wow, this is, um, you know, this is a really amazing recapitulation of of things that you know you know social thinkers were you know considering at the end of the 19th century and then seeing a kind of huge awful you know catastrophic demise Mm -hmm. during world war ii as a result of a certain kind of loss of meaning um and then the reassertion of meaning through totalitarian means um is now a you know a trigger point it's saying we've got to have a means of saying it's, forgive the repetition. It's like we got to have a means of saying what what is meaning. You what know? is the meaning of eternity? You know, it's like. Um, wait, I have a question. Yeah. So thinking back to our question about what he would make of like feminist standpoints, I think something that made me kind of hesitate um, mm-hmm. in that regard is that I I think that one of the things that like feminist epistemologies and standpoints and this sort of like move to like you know create space for indigenous knowledges or like democratizing knowledge. Um, what that does is say that like knowledge is more, okay. to a couple different things. Knowledge is like not, it not completely encapsulated by the things that the exchanges that happen between like elites and academic institutions, right. That it's like knowledge happens everywhere. It happens from below. It happens on the ground and it looks different in those places. And we should create space to, value the kinds of knowledges that happen um every day from below and within the sort of discipline disciplinarity of like elite knowledges or whatever Mm -hmm. right but i i wonder i still read him as kind of saying that like the everyday are suspect to or um susceptible to capture by people who've harnessed nature rather than rationality, right? So that the, like, formalization of thought is kind of, like, alienating to people who are just, like, normal Joe Schmoes and that they feel disciplined by it and they're suppressing their, you know, human instincts, but, like, they still don't make the move that the philosophers make to interrogate positivism's you know self-referential justificatory system right so Mm -hmm. that that that's one thing that i'm not like where i would be hesitant to take him all to the place of like feminist standpoint yeah yeah, absolutely because like i still think he thinks that there is some kind of role for philosophy philosophy yeah yeah don't you think yeah i mean for people who are interrogating themselves or at least you know being self-critical or paying attention um, I don't know about philosopher kings, right? But like, you know, certainly people who I kind of think he really loves the idea like of philosopher kings. You know? I mean, if you think about it, he's talking about like, you know, he's critiquing sort of like only an economic way of understanding things or or thought being instrumentally beholden to the economy. And it's like, who's under the philosopher kings? It's the like traders, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or no, it's the guardians, and then it's the traders at the bottom, right? But I mean, that is there. I think I also think that that's there. Or on some level, I don't know. It's like to to think through what I was just watching the other night from John Oliver's show. X-Files? Well, I, I mean, thought, other than I the X-Files. I thought you were going to say Xena Warrior Princess. Oh, actually, there were a couple of things. I was going to bring up an episode of Xena the Warrior Princess. I was going to bring up an episode of Charmed. Um, whoa, the, whoa. I know where, Suddenly, the, where the avatars <laughs> take over and create like a utopia, but want to remove conflict, etc. 
Um, but then there, you know, an episode of John Oliver, you know, where he's talking about, um, you know, Trump and mm-hmm. like the name brand of Trump and like how people don't interrogate like the, the, the political histories and the history of the candidate themselves, like itself um, invites like the, the quote everyday knowledge, you know, or the invitation of the everyday knowledge of something, of someone um, is a potential for saying, you know, you know, a group of people who are not interrogating some of the claims that they're making about some, you know, big figure, as it were, in yeah. politics or otherwise, right? Is this, you know, is this herd instinct or is this just the fact that there's a kind of resentment against having to interrogate in the first place? You know, is this a, is this mm. the fact, like, right? It's like, is it just the fact that they're going along with the norm or is it the fact that they, they, meaning like, let's say, you know, and I, I don't want to pick on a population, but I would pick on a population, let's say like Trump supporters, you know, Joe Schmoes, Joe Schmoes who, who want, who want to, in that sense, like support Trump. They're not willing to interrogate, you know, Trump's past in such a way as to be like critical. They're not willing to take his like antics as being clownish and problematic. They're not willing to take his racism, his xenophobia as being ultimately, in, you know, in a fundamental sense un-American. But like, it's also like, in a way I'm asking, is it herd instinct or is it resentment against like a system that's asking them to be self-critical? I think, it, I think it's resentment against like the elite appropriation of like self-criticality and intellectualism, mm-hmm. and how that's related to class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, um, what's the other word I'm looking for? I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I think it's but resentment. I, of yeah, that. but mm-hmm. I don't think Horkheimer makes space for those people to. Yeah participate in the discussion the, in, the, in the like recapturing of nature the revaluation mm-hmm. of nature the freeing of nature from the from under control of rationality right because right? he sort or of says that it, yeah it gets redirected mm-hmm. redirected no matter how and there's almost there's this one point where he almost predicts like the startup culture mm-hmm. um and talking about like the free market of thought mm-hmm. and, and it's like no matter how hard you try that rebellion gets rerouted in a mm-hmm. way but i think you're really right i think that is there and it's like I think the Trump supporter thing is, is yeah, it's like resentment of armchair liberals who mm-hmm. associate, to claim, who, who claim to have some kind of um, hegemonic grasp over self-criticality mm-hmm. or intellectualism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in certain ways, like there's threads of Horkheimer maybe reinforcing that, although yeah. I haven't read the whole book, so. Disclaimer at the end. Disclaimer. <laughs> this is based on the two chapters we read. So at the same time, like it, it like yeah, it totally captures it. But Should like, we wrap any, it up? Yeah. Any yeah. like last thoughts on like on Horkheimer? Thanks, Mox. Thanks, Mox. Thank you, Mox. Thank well, you. Thank for, you, so, thank thank you for writing a book in nineteen forty seven that gives us so much to think about in twenty sixteen. It does. It's pretty clairvoyant. Mm-hmm. Do you guys wanna one time do a podcast in like old timey newspaper voices? Yeah, totally. That's just Sam. Yeah, yeah that, that exactly. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Headline from 1947. Yeah, I know. That, I think that would be perfect. Well, stay tuned My for a potential episode. Well, hello there. <laughs> hello there. Uh, stay tuned for an episode or not that uh, takes place in old-timey newspaper voices. That's right. And uh, happy Super Tuesday. In the United States. I think. I don't know. Because right, we have listeners we who are not in the U.S., uh, oh, but for those of you, uh, you know, outside the U.S., today is that's a true, we do. major day. In <laughs> today the is a terrifying States. day. Today is a terrifying States. day in the United States in which, um, you know, nominees for the political parties, um, uh, you know, ultimately sort of get their their various delegates. So mm. scary. Stay tuned after these messages. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Always Already Podcast. This is your segment, One or Several Wolves. And today we have a dream to be analyzed on behalf of B. Lee Altman, who's sitting to my left. He's going to read an anonymous dream. Of course. Um, In the anonymous dream, uh, it says that they are a karate instructor who apparently is doing quite a good job, but the entire time 
they're feeling particularly uh, problematic because they don't know karate. Uh, and the dojo master apparently comes up um, during the middle of class and tells the instructor, um, the dreamer, that they're doing an excellent job. Um, but the entire time, uh, the you know karate instructor feels that you know they're it's problematic. They don't know what they're doing, but somehow they're just getting by. <clears throat> so what do we think, folks? B, you have imposter syndrome. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Always Already podcast, which is created by James Padalini Jr., Emily Crandall, Rachel Brown, B. Altman, and John McMahon. Visit our website, alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us text you'd like us to discuss, advice questions to answer, dreams to analyze, to alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, at alwaysalreadyon. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to our RSS feed, and leave us a positive rating on iTunes. Thank you to Leah for her song Static Loops, our opening music, and this time for her cover of Modern World by Wolf Parade. Uh, we've been holding on to that one for the perfect opportunity, and what better one is there than Horkheimer? Thanks also to B for his cover of Landslide, which you are hearing right now. Until next time, have an always already day. Always a group. <laughs> <laughs>